You're listening to Confronting Christianity, a podcast of training the church. The experience of gender dysphoria can be very real and painful, even if the conclusion, well, this person is really a female in a male's body, even if that's the wrong conclusion, if that's not the real truth of the scenario. Because I don't think the name carries with it anything more than cultural context on gender, whereas pronouns are a different thing. Are we wanting to use somebody's preferred pronouns out of love for them, or are we wanting to use them out of fear of how other people would receive us? Yeah. What what does Christian courage and conviction look like in, in, in this scenario? This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rebecca McLaughlin. How are you, Rebecca? I'm like so tired. I'm so tired. I'm not at my best. But, you know, the Lord is good. We're doing this. I was wondering if you were going to be honest or do like the uh, performative podcast, you know? (laughs) Today is such a great day. No, today's (laughs) not a great day. We're just hanging on here. I'm so amped. Yeah, when Rebecca and I both tuned in, it was like, you know, because we can see each other through this uh, beautiful and, and and broken machine of the computer. Uh, and uh, when she tuned in, it was clear to both of us. It's like almost like the downcast was visible on both of our faces. And it's not because of what we're deal- doing here. It's not because of the topic that we're discussing. There's a lot of hope and there's a lot of help. When you think about this, it's just sometimes you get tired. And uh, I was drinking coffee off screen. And Rebecca, is it okay that if I can I you, you can, can disguise what I was drinking? I thought I thought Rebecca this early in the morning was drinking a big old glass of lemonade. It looked like a huge glass of lemonade. And I think just forced perspective, the way you held it up in front of the camera, it looked gigantic. But then she said, no, it's just diluted pineapple juice. Which, which is probably even weirder to most people. Maybe. I'm basic. I'm a small child. I drink a diluted juice. I don't, I, I don't like water. And I know you need to drink water. Mm. So I make it taste good with juice. Hey, you know what? Um, I, I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, well, today we are not talking about our morning beverage options. We're talking about the very light topic uh, that we have posed here, which is our transgender women, women, which is uh, not a light topic. It's a topic fraught with both uh, the unique personal experiences of people across the world, uh, and it's fraught with some really heavy lifting when it comes to some crucial questions about what is a person. Uh, what is a person and what makes a person a person? And so, Rebecca, let me just get us going here. And I want to just, this is one of those episodes where it would be good for for Rebecca and I to just tell the audience a couple of things. One, um, we, we do have convictions rooted in Scripture that we want to speak to with a tone of compassion because that's what the Scriptures call us to. So we're not freewheeling in this conversation in terms of uh, like, I wonder if Rebecca and I believe in men and women. No, we do. There are some rooted convictions that we have. At the same time, we want to acknowledge that uh, if you come to this podcast, we try to bring on guests when we want like an expert's expert opinion on something. We're going to bring guests in for that. There are going to be other episodes where Rebecca and I are talking together, and we just want the audience to know you're invited into the conversation, but it's going to be a real-time dialogue that we're working out together, and hopefully it will model the kind of spirit in which these informal, non-academic, non-expert conversations can happen among Christians. But we do not want to, and this is a good episode 
to just kind of put the caution out there. We do not want you to see us as experts on everything. We aren't. We are Christians looking to engage charitably and convictionally with the world around us and the questions that it's asking. And this is one of those questions. Is that fair, Rebecca? Have I represented us well here? Yeah. Okay. So let's just, let me just push the ball into the conversation and we'll, we'll see where we go. What is a man and what is a woman? That question, on the one hand, sounds like it's really simple. And I, I think there are many Christians today who, who are giving a like absolutely simple answer to that question. And, and I think there's, there's some value to that. So uh, many people in my country, actually many non-Christians, uh, are defining a woman as an adult human female. And that seems like a very kind of helpful, basic dictionary definition of, of, of what a woman is and something that it's, it's troubling when many feel like they, they, they can't embrace that definition of a woman. At the same time, I think we need to recognize as Christians the ways in which we have sometimes defined a man and a woman in ways that go beyond what the Bible says, actually in some parallel ways to how some non-believers might might go beyond um, scriptural categories in defining men and women today. So what do I mean by that? I'm curious for your thoughts on this, actually, actually, Kyle. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there are, there are three different uh, pieces or angles that we can approach this question from. We can think about biology, we can think about mm-hmm. theology, and we can think about psychology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, to some extent, the easiest is the biology. And, and I think mm-hmm. that having a definition of a man and a woman that is rooted in biology is profoundly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you biologically are a man, I biologically am a woman. And as far as I know, for both of us, that is actually a completely like uncomplicated biological question and answer. Yes. And, and I think an important footnote here is that while, because what you just said kind of signals that for some people it may not be uh, uncomplicated, but for the majority of people as a norm, the anatomical biological alignment of their gender or birth gender is fairly uncomplicated. Yeah, and and uh, at the same time, it's absolutely true. And like the the very large majority of of people, that's true um, for the the large majority actually of people who identify as transgender as their kind of gender identity today. Their their biological sex is straightforwardly mm-hmm. male or female, as opposed to like a situation of intersex or some sort of anatomical complications. Yeah. So so at the same time, and I have a. Um, Dear friends, you have two kids who were born with disorders of sexual development, um, which is sometimes described mm. as intersex, um, where in this case, the, these two kids are chromosomally male, but presented more, looking more female at birth. So actually, there, you know, there, are, set, there are a small um, proportion of people for whom there is real sort of biological complexity. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sadly... People in that category often use a sort of pawns by both sides in these kinds of conversations. So you know, just to, absolutely, <laughs> just to sort of um, flag that. But so we can think about, we can think biologically, we can think theologically, and I think this is a place where you and I, you know, we're both on the same page to say that there are things that the the scriptures say about men and women that we are equally created in God's image, um, that mm-hmm. we are. Um, equally called to be followers of Jesus, that there are many, actually the, the large majority of things that the Bible says about men and women are sort of said to both men and women. Absolutely. Yep. But that there are also certain situations and circumstances and, and sort of areas of life where men and women are called to different roles. And you know, one example yep. of this would be in marriage. So we can think biologically, we can think theologically. And then there's this third, third category of psychologically. Mm-hmm. And this is where, th- this actually takes the driver's, the driver's seat 
in most mm-hmm. transgender com- conversations today, right. where, where many in, in our culture are saying that somebody's internal psychological sense of their maleness or femaleness trumps their biological sex, yeah. male or female. Yeah, yes. But, but actually, and this is where I want to kind of introduce a little bit of complication into, into the conversation. Actually, I think we Christians have often said theologically sloppy things that have sounded not unlike the kinds of claims that people make when they say, yes, my body may be female, but I, my, my gender identity is actually male. Or conversely, my body may be male, but my gender identity is actually female. We, we have often talked as if there is a sort of set group of psychological features that are intrinsic to maleness or femaleness, mm-hmm. rather than just like average differences between men and women that we've kind of made those essential and to my mind, actually confused the conversation about what a man is and what a woman is. Back over to you, Kyle, having, <laughs> having said a lot of things. No, no, no. No, no, no. That was a really strong way to start. I agree that those three categories are the operative categories when we're talking about this biology, theology, and psychology. And I do think that part of the current confusion is that those categories are considered out of alignment from which ones are foundational and and essential Mm -hmm. and which ones are more clarifying or experiential. Now, I will agree with you in full substance that the Christian tradition, and and I don't want to say this, when I talk about the Christian tradition here, I don't want to talk about like the last 2,000 years of the faith lived globally and Mm -hmm. historically. I will say that I do think that when you look back on the history of the church and the history of the church's doctrine, that you do get a fairly robust view of of this question of what personhood is. But I do think that it's global Western experiences and, 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 and any Christian tradition is shaped by its, its historical situatedness and its social situation, where and when it was, when it was being practiced and experienced. And part of that in the global West, which I can speak to, I can't speak to this to in the global South and global East. I'm just not as familiar with how this conversation has transpired. But I agree that gender, the definition of what a man is or what a woman is, has not only been confused by Uh, changing cultural morals or values or the sexual revolution, it has also been called into question by the very gender rhetoric of the church itself. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I can remember walking through a bookstore whenever I was uh, seven or eight years old, and I saw a very popular book on the shelf that always seemed to me like it was the message I heard in the church as well. I, I remember it was a Barnes and Noble, and I remember thinking, is this a Christian book? Because it was so firmly entrenched in my head that this is what Christians said about gender. And many of you will be familiar with the title, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. This kind of rhetoric that men and women were so qualitatively different that they couldn't possibly understand one another. And a lot of the rhetoric and argument around that where, you know, men have these psychological traits that set them apart from women. You know, men like uh, the color blue, not the color pink. (laughs) Men like to hunt and fish and women like to sew and paint and men like to hustle and grind and work and sweat and toil and women like to, you know, chit chat. Uh, (laughs) Like I am not affirming any of these stereotypes. I'm merely saying they had a, they have had culturally and in the life of the church, a disproportionate impact on the way of thinking about gender. So I think the church surrendered its birthright in terms of prioritizing biology or anatomy and theology 
And they started to drift into what was frankly just a secular form of psychological reasoning that has now been appropriated by the transgender movement. So I do agree with you, Rebecca, that much of the confusion has not just been an external confusion that now we're having to set our fence against, so to speak. But it was an internal confusion that still exists in, I think, many Christian communities. Yeah, and I, I think one of the responses that Christians um, sometimes have in, in the face of, of transgender ideology and how that's, that's kind of working out outside the church is to almost want to double down mm-hmm. on some of those kinds of things and to say, you know, we, we want to um, offer a, a very secure and robust definition of what a man is and a woman is. And so we're going to, to double down on, you know, the man is not just, not just these may be certain sort of um, roles that a man is called to in scripture, but that there is a sort of psychological essence to a man. You know, for example, somebody might say, if a, a Christian leader might say, when asked, what is a man? They might say, well, a man is a protector and provider. Like I can absolutely, like I can absolutely imagine a Christian, you know, teacher getting up on stage and saying that. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, okay, like that's, there may be situations and then there may be um, pieces of the script, parts of the scriptures that are are calling men into certain roles in certain situations. But is, is that actually the essence of what a man is, or is that something that a man might be called to do? And I think one of the challenges and, and it's both a challenge and it's something that I actually kind of find freeing is that often in the scriptures we're called to things that aren't necessarily aligned with our, our deepest psychological desires. You know, when Jesus says, oh, yeah. anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he's not saying, this is because you guys are natural cross-taker-uppers. You guys, you know, <laughs> it's deep in your heart to desperately want to sacrifice yourself. And so that's why I'm calling you to this. No, he's yeah. actually calling us something sort of profoundly against our, our, our innate psychological um, identity as... Yep as sinful humans. And, and I think when we take certain roles from the scriptures and import into them certain psychological features, we, we're grounding our theology on very, very poorly and in ways that the, the Bible doesn't. I mean, marriage is, is, is a great example of this. Um, you know, if you say, well, wives are called to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5 because women are naturally more submissive than men. And I'm like, is that what the text says? No, it says it's because of Christ and the church. You know, men are called to love their wives, husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not because men are naturally loving and self-sacrificing, but because that's what Jesus did for us. And so I, I think we have often made the mistake of grounding our theology in psychology rather than taking it at face value from the scriptures and, and keeping it theologically grounded. I agree a hundred percent. And I, I do agree that if we prioritize the psychological traits, even noble, virtuous psychological traits, which I think should be said, there are many traits that are ascribed to men and women in that kind of more psychological approach to the question of gender and gender identity that I'm like, oh, well, those are virtuous things. So I'm not saying that they're all bad things. Like when somebody's like, man, I want men to be courageous. I'm like, yeah, I want all people to be courageous. Right. <laughs> like, like I would be, I want, I, I don't just want courage to come in one rep, like, like just among men. If we only, have, you know what I'm saying? And I don't think the scriptures are inviting right. us to yeah. make those kinds of decisions. Yeah. We often want, we want to separate out the sort of masculine virtues and the feminine virtues in ways that the mm-hmm. Bible just simply doesn't. Yeah. For sure. So I, let, let's get to the question of the episode. Uh, now that we've kind of laid a little bit of foundation, is a transgender woman a woman? If we, if we start with the biological and the theological, yeah. is a transgender woman a woman? 
Yeah, so just to clarify for those who are less familiar with this conversation, a transgender woman would be somebody who is biologically male, but who identifies as as female and may you know may present as, as female in terms of the kinds of clothes that they wear, the name that they might take, and how they would want to be addressed, just so that people know what that means. So if we if we are answering the question with biology and theology, then a transgender woman is is not a woman. Right. So you know, it, straightforward answer to that question, the answer is no. Now, if we have um, shifted our our weight into the psychological, and it, and if we have kind of bought into stuff that's happening, you know, both outside the church and and within the church, in terms of this um, the sense that that psychology is is really in the in the driving seat when it comes to what a man is and what what a woman is, I think we actually lose our grounds for saying no. Yeah. In a in a straightforward way. No, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, if so, if somebody comes to me and says, is a transgender woman a woman? And, and this, uh, we, we did a sermon series on this in August on what is a person. And we dealt with the question of gender. And we talked about this. I had a lot of questions afterwards. And one of the things I would tell somebody is go, like, well, why would you say no? And if their answer began to become something like, well, you know, uh, men are really wired with these characteristics or these traits or whatever. I said, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. If that's the case, then can't anybody who embodies those traits or takes them up as their pursuit, can't they call themselves a man or a woman? And you start to see how flimsy that is. So you have to bring people back in and go, no, there are some biological realities and there are some theological truths. And if we're not willing to anchor our response to this question fundamentally in those two places, then we do surrender our grounds to be able to have the kind of fixed clarity that we need to have in order to hold the conviction. And I think that we'll surrender our ability to move forward with compassion and not combativeness because the psychological things can be disputed. It's very hard in this argument. If you start trying to take issue with how someone feels, Mm -hmm. That is a very, that's a very difficult terrain to engage with because it, it's an internal thing. It's very difficult to try to reason through somebody's experience of the world or the experience of their own body. But if we say that's the terrain that we're supposed to play on, I do think that we lose that. We lose the ability to persuade nine times out of 10. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, and then we just get our, like you said, the church kind of gets its tackles up and it's like, okay, well then we've got to like, We've got to show like the most masculine masculinity or the most feminine femininity as the counter argument, as opposed to going, no, we can just clearly state that for most people in the world, there are no complications regarding their anatomical correlation with their chromosome structure. And those things are clear. They're synced up. They correspond to one another and they're cohesive. And for that reason, that it's fair for us to say, hey, a transgender woman is not a woman biologically, anatomically, theologically. And those are the principal places. And if you if you strike out there, then even psychologically, if the person feels a certain way, we want to be compassionate towards that. We want to be empathetic. We want to move forward, but we don't have to, we don't have to say, well, then I guess that's just the case. I guess that's what a man is or a woman is. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the the compassion and, and the empathy, which I think is really important, and I'm I'm a sort of unashamedly pro empathy person. I know there's a lot of <laughs> a 
a sort of recent um, brouhaha's about whether Christians should should be empathetic toward um, toward others in, in various ways, and, and even toward people who may be in, in situations of, of sin. Um, I'm definitely on the kind of pro-empathy side of that question. But I think one of the complications right now is that an awful lot of different kinds of experience are being bundled together under the umbrella of trans identity. Mm-hmm. So just um, to think historically for a minute, until pretty recently, until the last few years, the the large majority of people who experienced gender dysphoria, um, i.e. a sort of strong sense that their biological sex and their the kind of internal sense of whether they were male or female didn't align and that this was, you know, could be very painful to them. That was very largely um, something experienced by biological males. Mm-hmm. You know, very small number of biological males sort of proportionally who, um, some some proportion of, of those um, folks, you know, who started to feel that way as as boys would then become aligned in the, between their sort of sense of, of who they were and, and their their bodies, you know, that, that dysphoria would resolve as they went through adolescence and into adulthood. And there's a lot of debate as as to exactly what proportion, but like even setting aside that debate, some proportion of people who maybe as young boys felt like they really didn't kind of belong would would then feel like they did over time. In the last few years, what we've seen is is a massive upsurgence in the, the number of adolescent girls who are reporting what is um, sometimes described as a rapid onset gender mm-hmm. dysphoria, i.e. Yeah. girls who may, maybe as younger children didn't show any signs of discomfort with their, their biological sex, who then in a period of adolescence and often with other friends around them at school or other people they've connected with on social media um, starting to identify as either transgender or as non-binary, which is a you know, really big category right. for adolescent girls now to sort of opting out of the, of, of the mm-hmm. category of girl or, or subsequently woman, that proportion is, has suddenly ballooned in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And so what we're often, when we, when we talk about people who identify in one way or another as, as transgender um, and including mm-hmm. non-binary and the sort of various other, other kinds of terms, we are lumping together, you know, people who might throughout their lives have experienced profound and deeply distressing gender dysphoria, which has rendered them, you know, suicidal, like the, the, something very serious and, and painful and ongoing on the one hand, with a phenomenon that seems to be at least partly um, attributable to a sort of social contagion to right, yeah. adolescent girls who are really struggling with their identity, which is actually a very normal thing for adolescents of both sexes to do. But I think in our culture, particularly, it's a normal thing for adolescent girls to do, you know, to find that the expectations of, of what it means to be a girl are so, so demanding and so dispiriting, actually, that they are wanting a kind of opt out from that. <laughs> It, we're grouping all both those sort of extremes of experience together, and and um, I think that can lead to to Christians talking in dismissive and unkind ways, actually, about people who have experiences that I, you know I I don't have and you, and you don't have um, that it's probably, it's probably really hard for us to kind of get our, our minds around. And whereas the resultant identity may not be something that we we affirm as real, so um, mm-hmm. you know, whereas we may not agree with a trans woman that this person is in fact a woman we can absolutely ag- agree with the reality of their experience like the, the reality of their feelings if, if that makes sense and I think it's important to make make that distinction that, that the experience of gender dysphoria can be very real and painful 
even if the conclusion, well, this person is really a female in a male's body, even if that's the wrong conclusion, if that's not not the real the real truth of the scenario. Yes, and just to make sure I understand you, you're saying that it is simultaneously possible for a convictional, compassionate response to say, I do believe you that you feel real, genuine confusion and distress yes. regarding your embodiment. Yes. And I want to help. I want to be a blessing to you. I want to pray. And at the same time, be able to say, I, I am not prepared to say that I do believe that you are a woman. Correct. Or a man. Yes. I agree. And, and I want the audience to just kind of note what Rebecca has just done there is a huge part of this conversation that's being glossed over mm-hmm. in just the arguments themselves. And it's one of the reasons why I appreciate these conversations so much because it is a good reminder to us. Rebecca is not saying, you know what, if somebody tells you, um, if a transgender woman says that they're a woman— you do not have to go. I guess this is what women are. Or a, a, or a woman can be anything. Or anybody can decide to be a woman. Or even that this person is a biological woman. Or that I have to affirm that this is theologically appropriate. You don't have to do any of that. But there is an invitation there to go. The psychological experience of this person, internal and as different as it might seem from your own, can still be very real, not meaning that it is an indicator of external truth, but it is an indicator of internal experience. And that part of the conviction and compassion response is being able to sort those two things apart from one another, to be able to move forward and go, I do believe that you genuinely are experiencing some level of distress around this. And I'm deeply sorry for that. And I actually think the Christian has an account for this, right? I mean, like, The Christian has an account for psychological brokenness. And the Christian should be the first person to go, you know what? It's not like the distress you're experiencing. I may not experience that kind of distress and confusion in the same way, but I understand that all of us experience some level of uncertainty, fear, and anxiety about who we are in this world. And I think there's a reason for that. I think there's actually an invitation there. Now, Rebecca... I'll be honest with you. I've had some conversations with transgender people in our community. And I do not get the sense from them, and I've had a lot of conversation, I do not get the sense from them in one-off conversations or in the larger storytelling of the trans rights community that they would be okay with that response. Because the response does still say, I do believe that you genuinely are experiencing this as an internal reality, but I'm not prepared to affirm it as like, I'm, a, I'm prepared to affirm you're experiencing this. I'm not prepared to affirm you are what you say you are. I have not gotten a sense in my conversations or in my observations that the trans community is going to take that as a, oh, great, then thank you for... Thank you for honoring. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you've had different experience, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so so I know that you know this um, very well, but like there's an extent to which we can talk about the trans community or the gay community or the whatever, you know, sure. fill in the blank community 
as if this is a monolithic whole and we're going to get have the same kinds sure. of conversations with people if they identify in a certain way and that's mm. you know that's never going to to be the case so we will very likely meet people who identify as transgender who would have very different conversations um and, and responses than 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 others but yes i think it is it's certainly true that in general folks who identify as transgender um it, it feels profoundly important to them that they are recognized by other people as the the gender that they um they identify as rather than as their biological sex yeah and that it's something that they experience as very painful and disrespectful and unkind if they are not recognized in that way. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think one of the challenges we have as as Christians, and so you know, I think we'd want to think about this a little differently for, for folks within the church versus folks outside the church, but one of the, the temptations we have as Christians interacting with those outside the church is to think that it's like our job is mostly to kind of impose Christian ethics or Christian ways of thinking on non-believers, especially if, if it's in areas where um, it feels unsettling to us as Christians that those, those Christian norms are not being followed. I don't think that actually is our, our primary responsibility. Our primary responsibility is to love people and to share the gospel with them. Now, if a non-believer repents and believes in Jesus, that is going to change a thousand things in their life. It's going to change how, how they, they think about themselves as a man or as a woman. It's going to change how they think about um, their sexuality. It's going to change how they think about their finances. It's going to change how they think about, you know, A, A B, C, right through Z. But I think getting that clear in our own minds, like what it, what is my first responsibility towards somebody outside the church? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not actually to get them on board with Christian ethics in a range of, in a range of scenarios it's to pray for them, it's to love them, and it's to, in any opportunity I have, to share the gospel with them. Not because those other things don't matter, but because that's that's what they actually need from me. Would you agree with that, mm. Pastor Kyle? Well, 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 we are now at a inflection point. Go. No, if the question is primary responsibility, and you said that a couple mm-hmm. of times, then the answer is yes. Is our primary responsibility to advance Christian ethics in any domain in a public space among non-Christians? I don't know that I would say it's our primary responsibility. To embody Christian ethics is indisputable. We are to embody Christian ethics. If, if not, then our gospel witness and invitation will be lacking in some regard. So it's not that Christian ethics are uh, inadmissible to the court of evangelistic persuasion. Yep. Uh, it, Jesus tells us that as much if, uh, about the ethic of love, if, that they'll know you by the love that you have for one another. So we know that ethics matter when it comes to Christian persuasion and evangelism and discipleship. Now, if the question is, to what degree should we advanced, advance Christian ethics in public squares that are not purposefully evangelistic. That's a bigger question. As a Christian, I do believe that the Bible's ethics are morally superior to all other ethical systems. Oh, for sure. I, I think maybe just to, to clarify a little bit what I'm saying, I'm actually less talking about how we operate in the public square. You know, if I was called upon to mm-hmm. present to the local government on a question, I, I'm talking more about mm-hmm. how we relate to individuals. Yes, and I agree. And I think that, and what I'm saying is, I think that both of those are of great consequence. And I think that, 
I know that you're probably familiar with this before, and I, and I don't even know that we're saying something that's so totally different. We're probably far closer here than I'm thinking, but I'm working it out for the sake of the audience. And if we are, then it's like, great, let's figure out where, where we are, and I bet we'll learn. But I really think that advancing Christian ethics in the public space is of incredible significance when we think about the history of the civil rights movement. I'm really glad that uh, we're recording this the week after Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I'm really grateful that part of Dr. King's, uh, a crucial part of Dr. King's ethical compass was informed by the Christian ethics he found in Scripture and the prophetic voice of the Old Testament prophets when it comes to justice. And I think that I don't know that we would have seen out of the witness of Dr. King the same level of transformation if Dr. King had just said, you know what? I'm really just primarily responsible for engaging evangelistically with the hearts and minds of individual people that I encounter. I think that we would be in a very different situation apart from his public and prophetic moral witness. And I I wonder if we're at a point in our culture in the global West now to where the same level of responsibility exists on the question of sexuality and gender, where we can say, yes, I hope Rebecca and I and all other Christians are faithful evangelistically in imploring people to be reconciled to God and Jesus um, with conviction and compassion. And at the same time that we might say, you know, it also seems like we might be at a, a significant enough moment to where that is really good, really beneficial, faithful, and not enough yeah, so may, maybe, and I, I'm thinking out loud here, um, a moral issue that you and I both care passionately about and that we've talked about on, on previous es- um, episodes is the question of abortion. Mm-hmm. And that is something in my mind which, because of the the harm that pertains to it, to an, an, mm-hmm. another human being uh, um, made in the image of God, is something that, that Christians should be you know, strong, strongly engaged with in, in the public square, um, looking to provide... Uh, or seeking both legal changes, but also real support and love and, and options for, for women who feel like they don't have a choice mm-hmm. when it comes to, to whether they'll carry a, um, a baby to term. So on, on the one hand, I would say when it comes to abortion, I would absolutely want to be um, engaging in public advocacy from a pro-life perspective. If, if I met a woman who was considering an abortion, I would want to plead with her I would want to support her I would want to kind of give her every um, all the resources that I that I could to to help her choose to to keep that baby and at least carry that baby to term because there's a there's a human life at stake and I think you know it's hugely high stakes right if I was meeting with a non-christian woman who had had an abortion and she shared that with me my first move wouldn't be to say do you know what that was profoundly sinful and you need to repent mm-hmm it's true that it, it it's sinful, but but actually my first move towards her in that situation would be to want to hear more of her story, want to understand how she'd how she'd come to that point, want to sort of love her as as, as best I could, um, and, and listen in an empathetic way and and I would want to share the gospel with her. So I guess what I'm saying is it, it's not that I don't think Christian ethics matters and should be represented in the public square and, and should you know sh- shape the public square as best as best we can but that i think we can get into a tricky spot if we think that we're mostly out there in our communities to 
to use sort of weighted language to kind of impose Christian ethics on other people who are not Christians versus to invite them into the faith and long for the day when actually Christian ethics is going to kind of flow out of them. Yeah. But we are imposing Christian ethics right now. It's in some ways and not in others. You know, for example... Like murder. Correct. Like to not murder Absolutely. Is, is an imposition of Christian ethics. You can't look at the animal life in, in, uh, throughout the world and go, oh, well, yeah, they're operating off the same ethical system. So it raises the question, on what basis do we, do we rule against murder as a social good? Yeah, so, so I, I absolutely agree. When people say you shouldn't legislate morality, there's no way to not legislate morality. Mm-hmm. And that's a great example that murder is something that we legislate against because of because of morality. And we can ground that in, in, in Christian ethics in particular. On the other hand, there are, there are plenty of things that are morally required of Christians that shouldn't mm-hmm. be imposed on other people. So for, for example, Christians absolutely should be giving very generously to the poor. Mm-hmm. Is that something that should necessarily be imposed on Non-Christians, I mean, p- perhaps through certain taxation, but like, actually, but in in essence, no. It's it's sure, absolutely sure, sure. you know vital for Christians to be regularly praying, to be taking in the scriptures, to be attending church, you know, with with great regularity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. If I could change the laws of this country to enforce church attendance on everybody in America, you know, next Sunday, I wouldn't do that. Not because I don't think it would be great sure. for everybody in America to come to church next Sunday, but because I don't think it should be legally. Mm-hmm enforced for them. So I think that there's, I think we can have a legitimate debate as to what should be legally enshrined and what shouldn't, and what should be something that we seek to strongly advocate to our non-Christian friends in advance of them, like before they'd become a Christian. And what what we Uh would want to say, actually, no, this springs out of Christian ethics rather than being kind Uh of some hurdle you should jump prior to becoming a Christian. I agree. And it does seem like a a place of distinction there would be the desecration of image bearing. Right. The examples you've provided are examples that the legislation of which would not prevent the desecration of image bearing. Like if you said, hey, you need to routinely be attending church, that would not be solving for the desecration of image bearing or the undignifying of the human person or the abolition of humanity itself, whereas things like murder, systemic racism, Jim Crow laws, slavery. And I think that this is where we find ourselves with the question of gender and how it is possibly different than the question of sexual practice. Whereas many of the long tails uh, or the extensions of some of this of transgender ideology will result in the desecration of image bearers. Now, whether it is the desecration of an image bearer that one takes upon oneself, that is true. Most of the time, these are not forced situations. But it does still, and we still as a society, have been pretty, even as calloused as we are towards image bearers, we have had a a real hesitancy around condoning self-harm, self-mutilation. We, we've had a real hesitancy in somebody even willingly taking upon themselves their own destruction. And I think that that's where this question gets a little bit more confusing. And it's not to say that if you're, and I want to be really clear, because Rebecca, I think where you and I started here is an important place that where most people are going to engage with this. Like my local barista who's a transgender person, 
when we, when I engage with them, I don't always walk up to them and I'm like, notice I'm putting you on alert. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, you, you stand in defiance of image bearers, you know, and you're, you know, like, I'm not like coming to them with the ethical system and throwing it in their lap. Um, I'm trying to come to them with wisdom and compassion and grace and an invitation to consider the way of Jesus. And at the same time, I live in a community in which, uh, and I think this is increasingly so, these issues are presented in the public square. And I don't think that my ability to speak to the invitation of an individual person prevents or prohibits me from speaking to the broader ethic that I would like to see advanced among Christians and non-Christians alike. Yeah, and I I think when it comes to things that could be categorized as as self-harm, I I do think that there should be legal limits on what, um, you know, folks under the age of 18 uh, are allowed to do to their bodies, for instance. Like I actually, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that's something where we as Christians would find allies among um, many secular folk and in particular many folk who would identify as as secular feminists that um, having people who are not legally of age to vote be able to make permanent decisions about their their bodies that could Mm -hmm. ruin their potential to have children in the future or their ability to breastfeed those children if they're if they're, they're right. girls and, and, and actually can really harm their bodies in a whole range of ways. I, I think having you know, legal protections of children in that way is is super important. So I think that, I mean, again, this is going to be yeah. a, a question where the, I think there could be legitimate Christian disagreement in terms of exactly like mm-hmm. where we draw various boundaries and, and how much, sure. you know, enforcement there should be of, of Christian ethics mm-hmm. or otherwise, but that I think having limits around what children can do to their bodies through surgery, even if they think that that's what they want at the time. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that we, we absolutely should be advocating for. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you just mentioned something that's interesting there, Rebecca, that I don't, maybe some of our listeners would be surprised to find out. You said that there might be issues in which we find ourselves in agreement with feminists. Now, some people that are listening to this podcast might hear feminist as a big F word right? Of like, hey, feminists, what are you talking about? Aren't those, aren't feminists a part of the issue here? Didn't we get here because of all, you know, uh, because of crazy feminism? Like, aren't we here in this problem? But are all feminists on the same page with the question of our transgender women, women? Because I, I think that our, some of our listeners might be surprised to find out just the level of serious argumentation yeah. that some feminist scholars are engaging with on the question of transgender ideology. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most famous um, woman who identifies feminist today who is engaging in these these questions um, is J.K. Rowling. Yeah. It's funny, when I, I started, my wrote my first book and, and my second book, the kind of teen version of my first book, I thought, I'm going to use lots of Harry Potter illustrations because, you know, Everybody loves Harry Potter. It's not politically charged. Mm. It's, you know, common ground that I as a Christian can share with with my non-Christian right, friends. Right, right. And then, you know, between, um, I think it was between book one and book two or perhaps between book two and book three, J.K. Rowling went from being like everybody's favorite author to being massively yeah. politically charged because... It's crazy. She is is one of the prominent women who is saying, actually, once we say transgender women are women we have lost any stable definition of what a woman is and we have thrown away women's rights yeah 
Now, when I say women's rights, many of those, certainly not all self-identifying feminists, would include within women's rights the right to have an abortion. And I absolutely do not mm -hmm. think that that is within women's women's rights or, or, or men's rights right. to pressure a woman into doing that, come to that. But women's rights in terms of um, equality, in, in terms of protections in, in certain spaces, so whether that is a single-sex women's shelters for, for women who've been beaten and abused, whether it's women's prisons, mm -hmm. whether it's women's sport teams, mm -hmm. that they're, if we, if we say transgender women are women and that a man who identifies, <clears throat> a biological man who identifies as a woman should be treated as a woman in every respect and allowed into any kind of space that was previously reserved for women, we've actually taken massive steps back in terms of women's protections and rights. Yeah, And so that's something which, you know, J.K. Rowling has been drawing attention to and which a number of other you know, secular feminists, um, for instance, uh, Helen Joyce, who was a senior editor at The Economist, a woman named Kathleen Stock, who's a, a British, um, she was previously a pr philosophy professor until she was basically handed out of her post um, for mm. her, her views that, that actually biological women are, are those who should be yeah. considered women and, and not that, that biological men shouldn't be allowed to opt into that category. Now, it's worth saying that all, all of those three women I've named, they would personally have no problem with a man wanting to present himself as a woman in sort of social terms. It, it, they, it's not that they have a, an objection to a man wanting to dress in clothes that is more typical of women, for instance, or to use a name that's more typical of women. But they would want to have very real and stringent boundaries around the kind of access that a, that a man who was identifying as woman could have to other women, not because they're saying that all men who identify as transgender are sort of predatory or violent predatory. or, you know, yeah. but because as soon as the category is just opened up and that it, it depends only on your, your, your gender identity, sort of in inverted commas, regardless actually of whether you've had any surgery, then, then what you're doing is you're saying any... Fully, sort of fully fledged, fully embodied biological man can walk into any women's space, and, and that puts women in a, in a very vulnerable position. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does, and and I think you know, as listeners, you might be surprised to find out, but this is not uncommon. Um, and I think it's a good point to just kind of make here. I think that sometimes when we when Christians, and I'm speaking to Christians in our audience right now, when you start to feel like maybe there's an issue culturally that's being embattled, uh, that kind of. Uh, uh, deals with some sort of core Christian conviction that you could start to kind of feel like, oh, it's us and yeah. them, right? But that is just about never the case. There are typically people endowed with reasoning and common grace and looking at the natural laws of the world and human biology and the design of God and creation. And you might find more um, fruitful conversation partners than you would imagine um, among critical thinking, reasonable, generous, convictional, non-Christian people that you can engage with significantly for the purposes of a more fruitful conversation. So when you, this is one of those topics where it is, it is like been so clear that people are eager to slip into like trench warfare. You know, here we are, you know, all, all our Christians, we're right here. We've got, we're, we're huddled up. We're in the trenches. Everybody outside of this is on the other team. And uh, again, that's a, that's a wrong way of thinking about any position 
principally or not. And it is almost never the case that everyone who's not a Christian thinks the same way in the same way that everyone who claims to be a Christian hardly ever yeah, thinks yeah. the same way. So yeah, no, that's really helpful. Rebecca, let's, let's land with a really on the ground question. And because I think this is where, like when I talk to people in our church, in the church that I pastor, this is the most on-the-ground practical question. It's not just an online reality. It's they're working, they're in social spaces, and they're asking me, what do we do with preferred pronouns? What do we do with the question of, I know the person that's standing in front of me is not a he, but that is how this woman is presenting. I know the person in front of me is not a she, but that is how this person is presenting. And uh, it's, a, it's a playground. It's a board meeting. It's a after work, a happy hour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here I, it's a barista at the local coffee shop. It's a whatever. And now I'm in this situation. What do I do? Yeah, and I'm going to give a potentially unsatisfying answer which is to say, I think it actually depends. Uh, I think that Christians in, I I think Christians can have different consciences on this issue Mm -hmm. and that different specific scenarios could call for different outcomes. So you mentioned, you know, the barista at your local coffee shop and and likewise Mm -hmm. as a barista at the coffee shop I most frequently go to who identifies as a woman and is evidently biologically male. So that, that would be kind of, on, on the one end of the spectrum of somebody with whom I have only sort of very marginal social contact and no um, sort of natural moral responsibility over that person. At the other end of the of, of an, the spectrum there would be like if one of my children started to, you know, said, hey, mama, you know, I want you to refer to me as he rather than she um, and I'm changing my name. Like those would be the sort of two, two ends of a potential spectrum. One person with whom I have... Um, a small amount of acquaintance and no kind of moral respons- responsibility over them on the one hand and on the other hand, the people for whom I have the most sort of moral responsibility over them of my children. Mm-hmm. And I, I would make different a different decision in those two different scenarios. So it, it seems to me, and I, I may be wrong, this may be something I revise in the next few years, but it seems to me that as I relate to the person at the coffee shop, that rather than asking what their name is, hearing a female name and saying, no, tell me what your actual name is, that I'm actually better to say, hey, Sally, just to pick a random female name, um, great to meet you, my name's Rebecca. Sure. And as I say, I, I think Christians can come to different moral conclusions um, driven by their conscience in, in these scenarios. So I'm not saying like, this is a blanket rule for, for every, everybody. I think it's really helpful if we look at what are our motivations in a situation. Are we wanting to use somebody's preferred pronouns um, out of love for them or are we wanting to use them out of fear of how other people would receive us? Yeah. What, what does Christian courage and conviction look like in, in, in this scenario? I'm often asked by people, typically when I've been talking about um, sexual identity, actually, mm-hmm. I, I could, you know, people will say I could lose my job for standing for Christian sexual ethics in this area. And I would want to say, yeah, we should all be willing to lose our job. That, like that's something that shouldn't be off the table because we might lose our job. Likewise, we shall be willing to lose our job for not using somebody's preferred, preferred pronouns. I think we then need to kind of examine our hearts 
and the specifics of the situation to see what is the the, the most loving thing that I think that I can do in this scenario. Sure. What are your thoughts, Kyle? Yeah, I'm I'm not too far from there. I I would say that it, I don't use pronouns, even if somebody prefers them, that don't correspond with what the person is. Would you just to clarify? Would you use somebody's name? I guess the pronouns thing is always sort of, I kind would, of funny because it's like I, only when you're talking about somebody. Yeah, not, and that, yeah, that's what I was about to say. I will use their names, mm. and here's how I think through this. And maybe maybe I'm wrong. Names are not gendered. They're culturally conditioned. You can think of many names throughout the history of uh, English-speaking peoples. For example, I had I had uh, uh, many friends growing up whose father's name, first name, was Carol. Now, Carol is a name I don't think many people at this present moment would affix yeah. to a a man. Yeah. But there was a time in which it was not altogether uncommon. Lauren, or Lauren. And, you know, these are names. Taylor is a name that gets used interchangeably. I think there's enough usage in names colloquially and historically that we can see, you know what, names, they kind of fluctuate in terms of just kind of culturally where they're landing. I won't have any problem calling somebody by the name that they provide with me because I don't think the name carries with it anything more than cultural context and gender, whereas pronouns are a different thing. Pronouns are speaking directly to the question of gender. He and she are masculine and feminine. Uh, and they, them, are some sort, uh, is a, it's a murky middle of, it could, could go either way. So if somebody tells me, my name is, I'll, I'll use another one, and I'll use the opposite. So somebody is presenting as a male, but they are female, and they say that their name is Michael. I would have no problem referring to that person as Michael. That's Michael's yep. house. Michael works there. We're waiting for Michael. We're going to get coffee with Michael. I'd have no problem with that. I would not, though, call Michael he, him. I wouldn't say this is his house or his coffee shop or that's him over there because I think that I'm saying something different. Yeah. And it's a way for me to honor the spirit of that moment, of that engagement with that real person without having to fall prey to validating something externally in the usage of those pronouns that I I think would say more than I convictionally yeah. can at present. So I don't know if that's a cheat code, if that's a get out of jail free card, or if I'm just exempting myself from the situation. Or maybe someone might say, well, you're being entirely inconsistent. I just think there's enough flexibility in the usage of names historically and colloquially in casual conversation that there that is one of those areas where it's like, I don't know that there is gendered essentially as we make them out to be in a way that pronouns are yeah, speaking yeah, no, to. That's fair. So, do you mind, Carl, if we if we land with just one more thought uh, we were addressing earlier that kind of Christians um, of in in our yeah. audience, and and I just wanted to end with a, a quick word to Christians who are listening who might experience gender dysphoria or um, be considering identifying as as non-binary or yeah. as um, as transgender because of a deep sense of of feeling misaligned or feeling out of step with those around them who, who identify as male or female. And I think I would just want to say to those brothers and sisters, like, I, I want you to feel loved in that, in that situation. I want you to feel like there are brothers and sisters in your local church who will, who will listen to your experience and will walk alongside you in that. As, as we began this conversation that we 
define ourselves as male or female because of biology and theology and that there are hard situations where that doesn't feel well aligned with our psychology and that may be um, a really hard thing for you but my prayer is that you would trust Jesus in this and trust that he mm. knows you that he loves you that he made you with intention as a, as a man or as a woman as a boy or as a girl and that he will he will hold your hand through this as you as you cling to him Thank you for that. That's the right way for us to end here. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. We hope that you hear our heart here is we want to be helpful and hopeful. And we understand that this is a live conversation among Christians and non-Christian communities together. And we're interested to hear if you have any thoughts. We want to learn as we continue to learn together with one another. If you want to find us online, you can find Confronting Christianity on Instagram or Twitter. You can leave a review on iTunes and in your review, drop a question that you want us to explore in a future episode. We'll take it into consideration. If you want to find out more about how you can support Train the Church Podcast Network, you can go to trainthechurch.com slash support. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.